Take a Bible out, and I'm going to ask you to find two different chapters. I want you to find Exodus 25, and I want you to find Exodus 35. Last week, we left off with the Ten Commandments, and we talked about Table 1 a few weeks back. Last week, we talked about Table 2. We talked about what does it mean to love God, Table 1. What does it mean to love your neighbor, Table 2. To get to our passage this morning, which is really two passages, Exodus 25 and 35, we have skipped a few things, and I just want to acknowledge that quickly and make sure you realize the flow of the story, how we got to chapter 25. So these are on your notes. Exodus 21 to 23 contains various civil laws for the nation of Israel. We're not going to spend time on Sunday morning talking about those laws, but they were just sort of part of the original charter. You could say, in a sense, the original constitution for how God wanted his people to live as a nation during this time. Exodus 24 details a confirmation of the covenant. And this confirmation included a covenant meal with God, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel. We're going to come back to that in a minute. There's a lot of things we could say about that. We're going to come back and mention that here in just a minute. Exodus 25 to 31 contains detailed instructions about the tabernacle. Somebody in my Sunday school class asked me this morning, how long are we going to talk about the tabernacle? And I didn't really know how to answer that because I felt like I was being set up, like, you know, I don't know what to say here. And what came out of it was that they were part of a Bible study at one point where apparently they spent several months just talking about the priestly clothing that the priests were supposed to wear. And I said, we're not going to do that. I promise you. We're not going to do that. I want you to come back. I don't want you to leave. And uh, we are going to talk about the tabernacle this morning. And we are going to talk about a few of the details this morning. And in a couple of weeks, we are going to come back and talk about the tabernacle again. And we're going to talk about a few more details in a couple of weeks. But we're not going to spend an excessive amount of time on some of the details. What I want you to see is that in Exodus 25, God begins to say to Moses, you're going to build this tent. And he gives some basic preliminary instructions about what he wants the people to do. So we're going to read a few verses there. And then we're going to jump ahead. Some of what we skip in between 25 and 35, we're going to come back and pick up. But we're going to jump ahead to 35 because I want you to connect the dots in the story and see that the people actually did what God wanted them to do. So 25 will give us some of the instructions. 35 will read a longer passage and it will explain how they kept or how they obeyed some of those instructions. The whole thing centers on the tabernacle. And so this is the big idea, really, really simple. The tabernacle was designed to be the place where the holy God lived among sinful people. This was the spot. God kept telling Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going with you. He kept saying this to Moses. I'm going to be with you when you go talk to Pharaoh. I'm bringing you out of Egypt so that we can be together. And all through it, you have this sort of enigmatic riddle of how exactly is a holy God just going to live alongside sinful people as if there weren't a problem there? And the tabernacle gives us an answer, begins to answer that question, how a holy God can live with sinful people. So that's the big idea. You can follow along in the notes. Some of the things that we'll talk about, those are in the bulletin. And what I want us to do is read a little bit in Exodus 25. Then we'll jump forward and we will read in Exodus 35. So we'll begin Exodus 25, 
verse 1. We'll read to verse 9. The scripture says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting and for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary. Underline that word, we'll come back to that word. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, you can underline that word, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Now flip forward and look at Exodus 35. We'll begin in verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ram skins and goat skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. And onyx stones. And stones for the setting. For the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door and the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases, the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, All who were of a willing heart brought brooches, earrings, signet rings, armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, 
And the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. We're going to stop there and we're going to pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We come to a passage of scripture that is hard to understand. We read these instructions and the details and the things that were built and they seem so foreign to us today, thousands of years later and living under the new covenant. Father, we pray for understanding this week and in the weeks to come to understand the significance of this tabernacle, to to understand the gravity of what happened when you, the Holy One, came to live among sinful people. And Father, most of all, we pray that as we think about this tent, that rather than get bogged down in details, that we would see the big picture and we would see how this tent, this sanctuary, this tabernacle points us forward to Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of my all-time favorite movies is Field of Dreams. And my guess is that there's an age in the room. I, don't, I won't throw an age out there, but there's an age where I would say from this age and up, you've all seen it. And I realized this week there's probably an age from this age and down some of you haven't seen it. And so I thought I would just try to explain a little bit of what is happening in the movie before I jump in and, and talk about the scene at the end that I want to get to. Uh, Kevin Costner plays a guy named Ray Kinsella. He's a, a corn farmer. And in the movie, what it's all building up to is a conversation with his dad, John Kinsella. And you can see in this picture, there's Kevin Costner from behind, and he's talking to his dad. And you're looking at him thinking, well, he looks really young to be his dad. And the explanation is that in the movie, John is a time-traveling ghost baseball player who lives in a cornfield. And when you say it out loud, it sounds kind of funny. Time-traveling ghost baseball player lives out in the cornfield in Iowa. But that's what it's about. And he comes out and they play ball. And in the end, he has this conversation. Ray Kinsella talking to his dad, John Kinsella. And the conversation, the part of the conversation I want to mention goes like this. They're standing there and the music is nice and the sun is setting on the, on the cornfield. And John looks at Ray and he says this. Is this heaven? And Ray looks back at his dad and he gives the famous line, no, it's Iowa. And they sort of look around at each other for a while and John, the time-traveling ghost guy lives out in the cornfield, John says, huh, I could have swore it was heaven. And then this is kind of interesting, they have a little moment and Ray looks back at his dad and he asks him a question. The question that Ray asks his dad is, is there a heaven? Which is a strange question to ask a guy who just got confused between heaven and Iowa. But he asks him anyways, is there a heaven? And he looks at his son, John looks at his son Ray and he says, oh yeah, it's the place dreams come true. Ray takes a moment and the music cues up and they show the scenery and you get a little lump in your throat and he looks up at the, the house and the porch and he sees his wife and his daughter swinging and everything's nice and he looks back at his dad, Ray looks back at his dad and he says, well, maybe this is heaven. 
And the movie kind of ends from there, and it ends with this nice scene, thinking about what is heaven. And I think that's just a, a good description of the way our culture today thinks about heaven. If you just kind of ask the average person on the street, tell me about heaven, I think people have this idea of, well, heaven is the place where all your wildest dreams come true. Or everything you always wanted is just the way you wanted it to be. I think about some of my friends in Kentucky that used to say to me, you know, for me, heaven would just be a log cabin over in the hollers out away from everybody and just be out by myself. And they had this idea of this is what heaven, this is what they wanted heaven to be like. And they really had this hope. You listen to some of the gospel songs, some of the bluegrass songs that they used to sing and listen to. There's this hope that it would just be, heaven would just be whatever we wanted it to be someday. And I'll be honest with you, if Field of Dreams is on TV, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to watch the movie. I love the movie. It's a fun movie. It has some sort of sentimental value to me. I don't know exactly why, but I love the movie. But when it talks about heaven at the end, that's a silly way to talk about heaven. And it's a selfish way to talk about heaven. To assume that in the end, heaven is just going to be whatever we want it to be, that our experience of heaven is just going to conform to our selfish, personal preferences. I I don't think the Bible speaks about heaven in that way at any point. The Bible says some amazing things about heaven, but I don't see any passages that say, look, when you get there, it's just going to be everything you always dreamed it would be. It's going to be everything maybe you didn't even know you should dream it would be. It's going to be a wonderful place, but it's not just going to conform to our selfish and, at times, silly desires. Now listen, all the way back in Exodus 25 and 35, I think if you have ears to hear it, you get a little bit of taste of what heaven is going to be like. I know the the details of this tent may bore you. When you're doing your personal Bible reading, you breeze through Genesis and you breeze through the first half of Exodus and you get to these details about a tent and it's like the brakes come on and you just think, oh, I'm not getting anything out of this. And sometimes it's because we get so bogged down in the details that we forget to see the bigger picture of what's actually happening where the holy God is coming to live among sinful people. And the tabernacle answers some really important questions about how that happens. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to come back to some of the details about the tabernacle. This morning, I want you to think with me about how it came about. How God moved the people to actually build this thing. And I think in the constructing of the tabernacle, there's some really important lessons to learn for us today, thousands of years later. And they are important, and they're not boring. The first lesson is this. What do we learn From Exodus 25 and 35. Number one, God exercises his right to determine how we worship. God as God exercises his inherent right to set the agenda for how his people worship. Listen, if you were here the last couple weeks, that should come as no surprise to you. Commandment one, two, three, and four. You will have no other gods beside me. You will not make idols. You will not use idols in your worship. Number three, you will use my name with respect and you will not take my name in vain. Number four, one day out of seven, you're going to set aside as holy to me for worship. 
to remember that I'm the creator and to remember that I'm your redeemer. God is saying to his people right out of the gate in this summary of his law, you will worship the way I want you to worship. And he's doing the exact same thing in these instructions for the tabernacle. This is not God sitting down with Moses saying, well, Moses, I don't know. What should, what should we do next? I got you out of Egypt, and here we are. So what do you think? You think a tent would be appropriate at this point? Well, what do you think the tent should look like, Moses? How do you think we should lay it? There's none of that. There's just God saying to Moses, this is what you're going to do. This is what I want you to build. And I want you to do it exactly like this. God is exercising his right to determine how we worship. Now, you may hear that and you may say, that big deal. What's the big deal with that? It's a really big deal to God. And there's a story that I mentioned earlier in Exodus 24 that helps you understand just how big of a deal it is to God. In Exodus 24, the people have already received the Ten Commandments, but they haven't heard about this tent yet. And God calls a group of people up Mount Sinai to confirm the covenant between him and his people. And that group of people very specifically includes Moses, Aaron, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You go back and read the story. The text says that they go up the mountain and they eat with God. It says that they beheld God. They looked at God, they saw God, and they had a meal with God on this mountain. And God is confirming this covenant, and the the leaders of the people are confirming this covenant, and they have a meal together. And there's a thousand questions I have about that. Who served the meal? What did they eat? What was it like? What did God look like? There's a thousand questions I'd like answered, and they're not answered. It just says, they went up, they beheld the Lord, they ate in his presence. Then they come down. And as they begin to worship later in the story in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, two men specifically mentioned in this special covenant ceremony. Not everyone got to go up and eat with God, but they got to. Nadab and Abihu get it in their brain that when they come to burn incense before the Lord, rather than offer the kind of incense that God very specifically told them to bring, they're going to bring their own incense. And it seems like such a small thing. God said, bring this, and they decide we're going to bring this, and they bring it before the Lord, and they offer this incense, and the text says that the Lord destroyed them on the spot immediately, instantly. And if you haven't been paying attention to anything else in Exodus... If you just do what some quote-unquote Bible scholars do and you just pluck that story up and you tell it to somebody, the takeaway is, well, God is really grouchy, isn't he? That's He just threw a temper tantrum. And those guys paid the price. But that's not the point of the story at all. The point of the story is that these guys were held to a higher standard because of what they experienced. And God was exercising his right to say to the people, you will worship me the way that I choose to be worshipped. It's not up for negotiation. There's a Bible scholar named Douglas Stewart who says it like this. It was God who told humans how he wished to be worshipped, not humans who told God what they decided to do by way of worship. God gets to set the agenda. That's true in the book of Exodus. It's true today. 
in worship. We don't get to just come to God and do whatever we feel like doing or say whatever we feel like saying or think whatever we feel like thinking. God's Word constrains us. And our objective in worship is not novelty, it's not creativity, it's obedience to what God has revealed about Himself and how He wants to be worshipped. You see that lesson all the way back in the tabernacle where God says to Moses, build it like this. This is the materials list you're going to need. This is the specifications of how I want it built. They collect the items and they build it. God has the right to tell us how He wants to be worshipped. Number two, a second lesson. God expects His people to be good stewards and joyful givers. Good stewards and joyful givers. Now I'll let you jot those words down if you're taking notes, and then I want you to look in your Bible. I'm not going to put these words on the screen, but I just want you to look in your Bible. Look at Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Verse 2 says, every man whose heart moves him. God wanted this to come from the heart. That's who you collect the contribution from. Jump forward to Exodus 35 and look how this played out. Exodus 35. In verse 5, it says, whoever is of a generous heart. Whoever is of a generous heart, that's who you take the contribution from. Look at verse 21. It says, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. Look at verse 22. It says, all who were of a willing heart. Look at verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29. All the men and all the women, the people of Israel, whose hearts moved. Over and over and over again. God says you're going to collect it from those who want to give. And in the description of how they collected it, chapter 35, Moses tells us over and over and over again. This was a free will offering. Now listen, there were times in the Old Testament where God told the people, you will give, you will give this much, and you will do it, period. That's it. Give it. Bring the first fruits. Bring the tithe. Do it. But in this instance, God said to Moses, you throw it out there to the people, and whosoever heart is stirred, whoever's heart moves them, whoever is generous in their spirit, that's who you collect it from. And he calls for this free will offering. As I read that this week, it reminded me of something I experienced in high school. We went on a, a mission trip, a world changers construction mission trip to Chicago. We stayed at a school in the Inglewood neighborhood, downtown Chicago, rough neighborhood. And the Sunday, if you've ever been on a, a World Changers trip, the first Sunday you get there, they send you out to church and all these different churches. And so my little construction team got sent out to church at this small downtown Chicago church, just right there in a the storefront. And so we show up and we were you know, at least a fifth of the congregation. There weren't very many people there. And the best way I can describe this church to you is to say they were a little more charismatic than we are here at Emmanuel, okay? They were just on the spectrum a little bit more charismatic or maybe a lot more charismatic. And so we sat down and our team sat on the front row and we're sitting there. And you ever have something burned, an experience burned in your memory because you're terrified? So we sit down on the front row. I'm a high school student. I'm about the oldest guy on our team. 
And this woman stands up on the platform at the very beginning of the service and she says, two of you guys are going to preach this morning. I'm going to call on you in a minute. So you better get something ready. She didn't tell us who it was. She just said, you got about 10, 20 minutes and I'm going to call on you and you're going to preach. And I was just terrified. If there was anything I hated in high school, anything I hated, it was public speaking. And my heart started beating and I was sweating and I was just, everything that happened from then on out just burned in my brain. Here's part of what's burned in my brain. Lady comes up and she says, we're going to take the offering now. And for the offering, they had a five-gallon water container. You know the ones I'm talking about? Made of thick plastic and really noisy if you throw coins in it. Well, that's what they do the offering in. And they pass it up and down the aisles. Be thankful for our offering box. They had five-gallon water containers, and they pass it up and down. So we sing a song, and this thing makes its rounds. And we're sitting on the front row. We're terrified. High school, we're looking for change, dollar bills, anything we got that might get you out of preaching. So we're throwing money in there, everything we got. Empty your wallet. And the thing goes all the way around, and we keep singing, and somebody takes it from the back, the five-gallon bucket, and they bring it to the front, and they had one of those nice tables at the front. And the song is still going, and the person takes the five-gallon bucket, turns it over, and starts shaking it, just like this, on the table. And we're singing, and they're shaking it out, and the high school kids in the front are terrified. What are they doing? And then they start sorting it out. Somebody comes up to help, and they start sorting it out, and they count it. And then the song. The song never really stops, but the bucket comes back up on the front. The the water thing comes back on the front, and somebody says, we didn't get enough, so we're sending it around again. Keep the song going. We're going to take it one more time. So they pass it around, and we're just terrified. What in the world? Throw your driver's license in there, throw something in there. I don't, what do they want? Put it in there. Get, take it all. And they pass the thing around again, and they bring it back up to the front, and they, same routine, shake it out, count it out. And then it wasn't like a way to go church. It was like a, eh, that'll do for this morning. And the service went on. I'm just telling you, that's not how a free will offering works. Everyone in that room knew if we don't hit the number, we're going to keep passing the thing till we hit the number. There's no free will about it. You're going to give, and we're going to keep passing it until you give. In this instance, God says, whoever wants to give can give. One question to think about. Where did this ragtag bunch of recently freed slaves get all the gold and silver and bronze and onyx? Where did they have money to trade with other people for all of these fancy uh, twined linens and cloths and all this stuff? Where did all of that come from? And if you've been paying attention to the book of Exodus, you know exactly where it came from. Exodus 12, on the night that they left Egypt, God said, you go to your neighbors and you ask for all their best stuff. It wasn't armed robbery. It wasn't piracy. God moved the heart of the Egyptians out of fear for the Hebrews to just turn their wealth over. And the next day, the Hebrews walk out of Egypt with the wealth of Egypt on their necks, in their wrists, in their fingers, in their backs. They plundered the Egyptians. 
God provided for the Hebrews. Listen, not so that they could build mansions in the desert. He provided for them so that when the day came, out of gratitude for what he had done for them, they could freely give out of what? It wasn't what they had worked for. It is what God had provided for them. And they could contribute to this tent that would magnify the glory of God. You understand that's true for you and me today too? God has provided for us, not just so that we can have more disposable income. God has provided for us so that when we gather together, we can freely give to a mission designed to bring God great glory and great honor. To take the gospel all across our city and even to the ends of the earth. When you read this passage and you realize that God gave the people the very wealth that they then gave back to him, you realize God wants his people to be good stewards. Not of their stuff, but of God's stuff that he has put to loan to them. And he wants them to be joyful givers. How did it all work out? How did it go? Well, it went really, really well. Look at Exodus 36. It says, The people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And the text is just, it's an amazing story. Moses throws this free will offering out, and the people start giving, and they come back every day, and they give more, and they give more, and they give more. And eventually, the foreman in charge of the work come to Moses, and they say, Moses, you got to stop. We don't have time to collect all this stuff and inventory all this stuff. We've got to get to building, and we already have more than we need. And Moses has to actually restrain the people from giving so much. He has to stop the offering. They don't have to send the bucket around the second time. They actually have to say, that's enough. Don't give anymore. God wants his people to be good stewards and joyful givers. Listen, when you see their obedience... In giving this offering, I just want you to understand, that's a good day for the Hebrews, right? We've talked about some bad days for the Hebrews over the last couple of months, days where they just fall to pieces, days where they forget who God is, days where they don't seem to have any faith, where they have spiritual amnesia. Listen, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some really dark moments for the Hebrews, but this was a good day for the Hebrews, And that brings us to the last idea here. God delights in the obedience of his people. He delights in the obedience of his people. I don't have a single verse to point you to here. I just want to mention the obvious fact that when you're reading through the back half of Exodus, there's a lot of repetition. God says to Moses, this is exactly how you build it. And then the text tells you, this is exactly how they built it. And it's just, it's repetitious. And as Westerners, we come to that second group of verses and we say, why couldn't you just say they did it exactly like God said to do it? Period. Let's move on to the next book of the Bible. But instead, it's repeated just at times word for word. This is how God says to do it. A, B, C, D, E. This is how the people did it. A, B, C, D, E. And they had plenty of stuff to do it. We can talk about lots of different reasons why God may want that repeated in one book of the Bible. But I think one reason, at least one reason, is just God saying to his people, that was a good job. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. You have failed miserably a hundred times since we left Egypt. But this was a good day. And God always delights in the obedience of his people. 
Let's end with this question as we wrap it up. How does the tabernacle point us to Jesus? I want to give you two thoughts. First is this. The term sanctuary and tabernacle remind us of the transcendence and the imminence of God. These two terms that you read in Exodus 25, one in verse 8, one in verse 9, sanctuary and tabernacle, they remind us of the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. Sanctuary is not a very common term in the Old Testament. Literally, it means a holy place, a place that's set apart, a place that not just anyone could go. And the idea is that the God, the holy God, the God who reveals himself as holy, 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 who's completely unlike us, who's above us, who's beyond us, who we can never totally wrap our arms around. That's all that goes into the idea of holiness. That God is going to come be with his people, and it's going to be a sanctuary, a holy place. And it's not holy because Moses made the tent just right. It's holy because the Holy One comes and fills it. This one who is otherworldly, who is infinite, who's beyond measure, comes down to this place and he says it's a sanctuary, it's a holy place. But then right behind that in verse 9 in chapter 25, he says build a tabernacle. And I know in our language that may seem like a really important deal, a really big deal. It just means tent. It's all it means. It's a tent. It's the same word used for any other tent you may read about in the Old Testament. And I hate to be a downer about it. I hate to be negative. But it really wasn't all that impressive. I'll put up on the screen a picture of the layout of what you saw when you walked into the tabernacle. This outer line, the outer fence of it, was about 150 long by 75 wide. And you entered through this gate or through this door on the east... And as you walked in, the first thing you saw was this rectangle, sort of an altar for burnt offerings that would be made there. And then this circle, we'll say that's the laver or the basin where the priests would wash themselves before they went in. And then you come to the holy place. You walk through this next door. And when you walk into the holy place, you see three things. On your left, there's a lampstand. Right in front of you, there's an altar for incense. And on your right, there is a table with bread on it. And behind all of that, there's a curtain, this line down the middle, separating the holy place from the most holy place. And if you were to go behind that curtain, you would find the ark, the very throne of God. And unlike all of the pagan temples, all of the pagan temples had buildings or tents similar to this. And when you went into the most holy place of these pagan temples, there would be a statue there, an idol. You walk into the most holy place of the Hebrews and all you see is a throne. And the one sitting on the throne is invisible. He can't be captured, commandment two, in any sort of graven image or any sort of idol that you can make with your hands. But his presence is there. And in our minds, sometimes we build this up to be larger than life. It really wasn't larger than life. In fact, in this next picture, you see that's the size of the outer court of the tabernacle. That's the size of Emmanuel Baptist Church Fellowship Hall. It just wasn't ginormous. It was a decent-sized tent. It wasn't like a little pup tent you buy at, at Walmart and take camping. But it just wasn't all that outwardly impressive. It was a tabernacle. But it was also a sanctuary. And these two terms remind us that 
on the one hand, God is transcendent. He's above us. He's beyond us. He's not like us. He's different than us. He's one of a kind. He's unique. But he's also imminent. And when he says to Abraham, I'm going to be with you, he means it. I'm going to be with you. The one who fills the heavens is going to go with you. And I'm going to live in the midst of these people in this tent. You're all living in tents. I'm going to live in a tent, in a tabernacle. He's above us and beyond us, and at the same time, he's with us. And listen, the Bible balances these two attributes of God from the beginning to the end. Think about the book of Genesis, where the holy, transcendent God opens his mouth and speaks out galaxies. And then he stoops down on the earth and he gets in the dirt and he fashions a man. And with the very same mouth, he breathes life into the dirt. That's transcendence and eminence and the same God. You see it when Solomon builds a temple later. He prays at this dedication to the temple. And the prayer that he prays in the middle of it, it's a long prayer, but he says something like this. He says, the highest heavens could not contain you. We can't contain you. How much less this building of bricks that I've thrown together. It's not going to contain you. You're bigger than this building. You're transcendent. But he also knew that God was going to be with him. He's transcendent and he's imminent. Listen, it's the same balance you see when the Holy One of Isaiah's vision, the one where the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. When that God, the train of His robe, fills the temple and it's shaking and there's smoke and all of those signs of transcendence is born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He's the transcendent God, the Creator, the one above everything, and at the same time He's Emmanuel, God with us. And you see those realities balanced in the tabernacle. Second idea, and we'll end with this, the tabernacle points us to the new covenant, points us to the great high priest, and it points us to the cross. Points us to the new covenant, to the great high priest, and to the cross. We don't have time on a Sunday morning, to read two entire chapters from the book of Hebrews. But I'd challenge you this afternoon or this week to take time to read Hebrews 8 and 9. Hebrews 8 and 9 talk about this old covenant instituted through Moses and this new covenant instituted through Jesus. It talks about this tent, this tabernacle, and some of the symbolism and some of the carryover and some of the lessons that are learned. And I just want to read one verse with you. I'll put it up on the screen. Hebrews 9.15 says this, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. It's not the death of a bull or of a lamb or of a goat. It's not a death that occurred at the tabernacle, but a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And the author of Hebrews is tying it all together. The book of Exodus and the New Testament, the Gospels, tying it all together and saying this. It's the death of Jesus on the cross that gives you the hope of forgiveness of sins. It's the death of Jesus on the cross 
that allows a holy God to come live with sinful people. And those sinful people, rather than cowering in fear because of the judgment and the wrath of God, can actually enjoy his presence. That's because a death has occurred. It's the death of Jesus, the one who brings this new covenant. The author of Hebrews is saying, look, it's the death of Jesus who is the sinless substitutionary sacrifice that gives you the hope of an inheritance. Translation, the hope of heaven. Not heaven just as you may dream it to be. Not heaven where all of your worldly dreams and selfish dreams and silly dreams come true. But of the place where the holy God lives with sinful people. And those sinful people have been redeemed. They've been remade. They've been renewed. They've been restored. And they enjoy the presence of God. That's what the tabernacle is pointing us to. It's pointing us straight to Jesus, to his death on the cross, and to the hope that he gives believers. So on that note, I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray together.